Hey everybody, welcome back to my channel. Thanks so much for tuning in. My name is Nana Trupiana, and every week I release a new episode of my show, Mob Times, where I review the lives and legacies of some of the world's most infamous gangsters. Before we get into that, I usually give a quick little life update, so let's go ahead and get through that really quick before we like move on to other things. Every single episode, I announce it at the beginning, but I do have chapters. So if you aren't interested in hearing about my life, that is totally fine. You can go ahead, skip to the next chapter, and you'll start hearing about this week's gangster, the very last episode of the trilogy, the series that has become the one, the only Carmine Persigo. Because this was not supposed to be a four-part series, okay? But it turned into this, so we go where we go. Okay, so anyway, yay, I'm pregnant. Woo, so happy, right? Honestly, I was so full of myself. I went into pregnancy and I was like, yeah, there is absolutely nothing that pregnancy can throw at me that the last year of hormone injections and pills and treatments and everything that I have gone through hasn't already thrown at me, right? Like, no way. I'm, I'm golden. This is going to be a freaking cakewalk, right? Oh, no. No, 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 no. I was so freaking wrong. <laughs> First of all, let's address the elephant or elephants in the room. My freaking chest is gigantic. I am so early on. Like, I thought that this took six months to happen. Like, why do I have five pound weights on my goddamn chest? Can somebody please tell me why is this happening to me so early? I thought that this was like six months in when you start producing milk and stuff. I don't know, but it's immediate. Like, I found out I was pregnant and immediately my chest swelled up and started hurting. And it is so painful. I mean, I'm happy. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to come off as like ungrateful. But if you know me, you know that I will find a reason to bitch about the nicest day outside or the most delicious food, okay? So I'm gonna go ahead and do that. This shit hurts. And nobody warns me about these dreams. Oh my God, these dreams. I have never in my life had such insane dreams ever, not once. And that's coming from someone who has spent the last like 20 years or so fully convinced that I live a whole ass other life in my dreams. Like I will tell anybody that listens about this whole other life that I live in my dreams. I'll go to sleep and I will have this other life where I have a whole other family and I go and I buy milk at the grocery store, like the most mundane things. I have a whole ass other life that I live as soon as I shut my eyes in this life. But these dreams are so far outside of normal that like they don't even approach normal. It's, it's just they're gone. And the crazy thing is how real they feel. They feel so real that like I literally wake up and I start Googling this stuff in my dreams because there's no way that I didn't already see a video of the things in my dreams because they're so real. There is no way that my weird ass little brain just made that shit up. No way. It has to have come from somewhere. There had to have been like a viral video that I saw that my brain recreated in my dream. But no, it's just all me, baby. <laughs> also, I have always been somebody that doesn't really need much sleep. Honestly, I've spent most of my life getting by on like three to four hours of sleep a night, and I am 100% totally fine. Like, do I have the deepest bags under my eyes that you have ever seen in your life? Yes, absolutely. But am I also a fully functioning human being? 
also yes. Now, bro, I don't know how nobody called an ambulance on me yesterday for fear that like I was in a coma. Like, okay, yeah, I went a night without sleeping the night before. And that's not great. You know, you don't you don't want to do that ever. But that's like a Tuesday for me. I always skip nights of sleep. Like, I have the weirdest sleep schedule. This is nothing new. Whenever I skip a night of sleep, I just I'll sleep a full eight hours. And that's like abnormal to me. And I just rebound. I come back perfectly fine. Now, yesterday, I slept 18 hours. 18 hours. I literally did not have a Wednesday. I didn't have a Wednesday. I just did not have the luxury of having a Wednesday this week. Nope. It was just Tuesday, then Thursday. I slept from eight o'clock in the morning till two o'clock in the morning. How nobody checked that I was still breathing literally just shows that everybody in my life is just super happy to be rid of me long enough for me to sleep for 18 goddamn hours. So yeah, I am sleeping a lot. I'm having crazy ass dreams and I have painful and gigantic elephants. That is what I'm experiencing so far. Honestly, I kind of believe that my cocky ass deserves it because I was so sure. I was so sure that I wouldn't feel anything until I was like six months along. I was like, I'm not going to gain any weight. I'm not going to have any mood changes. I'm not going to have any personality changes. I'm going to be exactly the same. Everything's going to be fine. And then once I hit like six months, then yeah, like I'll start having the pregnancy things. I deserve what I'm getting for my dumb ass cockiness. I'm clearly a moron. So, you know, just living with that. I'm okay with it. I'm a moron and I'm okay with it. Okay. So anyways, let's go ahead and get into the last episode of Mr. Carmine Persico, shall we? do a very quick recap because again I'm going to state over and over and over again please go watch the first parts because none of this stuff that I'm about to say is going to make any sense like yeah we're going to go through some trials and and you don't really need to watch the first part to understand the trials but you won't appreciate whatsoever what it took to get here okay in parts one two and three I go through Carmine Persico's entire life I go through how he got to where he is and I'm gonna bring up and say things that I talked about in parts one two and three So please, if you haven't done so, leave this episode, go watch part one, and then watch part two, and then watch part three, and then come back here for part four. Do not start at part four, please. (laughs) So yeah, I'm going to do a very quick and unofficial recap, and I'm going to assume that you all have taken the time to watch the episodes before. I'm not going to go over every single thing again, but we're going to do a quick little recap because I don't expect you to remember everything I said last week. Okay, so Carmine Persico has now officially taken over as the boss of the Colombo family. It's the 1980s, and Carmine Persico has now been sentenced to five years in jail for trying to bribe an IRS agent. That's okay, though, because nobody really wanted to be boss of this family anyway. Because due to the Gallo faction, anybody but Persico who has ever tried to hold this role has been attacked over and over and over again and almost killed. And nobody wants to take that risk on. I say besides Persigo, but 
he was attacked time and time and time again but this man is legit like he is immortal you cannot kill this man if you remember from one of the parts i believe it was like part two maybe in one of the parts i review one of the times that he was literally shot multiple times he got shot in the face got out of the car and spit a bullet out of his mouth. And that's just one of the many attacks that were carried out on him by the Gallo crew. So this is a regular common occurrence for him. He can take it. He's been taking it for many years now. He's still standing, but nobody else wants to live that life. Nobody. So yes, Carmine Persico is in jail, but everybody else is like, <laughs> more power to you continue being the boss because I don't want to. A few years back, Tony Abadamarco had been the underboss of the family, but he ran away to upstate New York after his friend, Salvatore Albanese, was presumably killed during a peace meeting after a revolt that the two of them, so Tony Abadamarco and Salvatore Albanese, as well as Joseph Iacovelli, led to their dumbasses going to the commission to ask the commission to help in ousting then-boss of the family slash talking piece for Persico, Thomas DiBella. So there's this big beef. Tony Abadamarco, Salvatore Albanese, and Joseph Iacovelli, they do not want Thomas DiBella to be boss of the family. Thomas DiBella is pretty much just standing there saying and doing whatever Carmine Persico asks him to say or do. And Carmine Persico's crew is getting a lot of attention and a lot of really good things their way because if Carmine Persico himself was boss, he wouldn't do the outright favoritism shit that he's doing. But because he isn't boss, he has Thomas Stabila sitting there as his mouthpiece. He has Thomas Stabila doing it for him. Now, these three guys, Abadamarco, Albanese, and Iacovelli, they get pissed off. And they're like, well, screw this. We don't want this anymore. So they go to the commission. And they're like, hey, could you do something about this? Could you get rid of Thomas Stabila? The commission pretty much is like, no, take care of it on your own. Don't bother us with this bullshit. And then Dabella's little faction, they come out and they're like, all right, listen, anybody that wants to have peace talks, we're not going to touch you. You'll be safe. Everybody knew that that was complete malarkey. Everybody would, everybody knew you're going to die except Salvatore Albanese. And he goes to have a peace meeting with Dabella's little supporter gang, a.k.a. Persigo's crew. Salvatore Albanese is presumably murdered. He is never heard of again after this peace meeting. And that leads to Tony Abadamarco jetting the F out, and he runs away to upstate New York. So he is no longer around. So in the recent past, we've had multiple civil wars within this family. The Colombo family is just not doing well for itself. We have the Gallo crew, who under Joseph Gallo has spent somewhere like 15 years trying to kill anybody and everybody that has had any kind of position of power in the family, plus... Carmine Persigo, in order to take control of the family and get a little more independence for their own crew, which is under the Colombo family. So when they're coming after the Colombo leadership, it's technically a civil war. And now we have this little Abadamarco war, which left multiple people who once held very high positions of power in the Colombo family scrambling for the hills. So out of all the five families, I think it's safe to say that the Colombo family has definitely experienced the most internal strife. Now, don't get me wrong. Do we have the Banana Wars where Joseph Banano tries to take out the entire commission and then there's wars trying to figure out who's going to take control of the family because some people believe it should be Banano and some... 
yes, the Bonanno family had problems. However, the Bonanno family didn't have problems until Joseph Bonanno was kind of forced to step down as leader. Up until that point, nobody ever had any issues in the Bonanno family. And that's notable because during that time that there was peace in the Bonanno family, the Colombo family is going wild. So the Bonanno family kind of caught up a little bit. Don't get me wrong. They did have their own problems, but the Colombo family, you know, it's like they could teach them how to do that. Like, oh yeah, we've been doing this so long. We got you. Let me teach you how to be at Civil War. So they're just like the OGs at this, okay? They have had it a lot harder for a lot longer. And anybody in the Colombo family, they've had a lot more internal strife. They've had a lot more wars, a lot more problems than any mafia member in any of the other four families. Now, right before I ended the last episode, I mentioned that Persico had been arrested for bribing an IRS agent, but I didn't really go too much into it. I didn't really want to go too far into it because I was already an hour and 26 minutes deep and that's after editing. So like when I started editing that video, I was at like two hours. So I was like, you know what? I'm not gonna go too much into it. I'm gonna mention the IRS agent. I'm gonna mention that he did try for it, but we're going to talk a little bit more about it here because that was a pretty wild incident. So 11 people, including Persico, are arrested for this trial. So yes, Persico is arrested for trying to bribe this IRS agent, but this is an entire set of trials. It's not just, oh, Persico, you're being arrested. 11 people in all are arrested. Now, there is crime across the board. Everything from labor racketeering to bribery of multiple different public officials to labor extortion, embezzlement, gambling, loan sharking, theft, sale of stolen goods, anything that you would expect to see from a mafia crew, we're going to see these 11 people being charged with. This indictment included Carmine Jr. Persico, Jerry Lang, Little Alley Boy Persico, or Persico's son, which is kind of important to notate because Carmine Persico has a brother named Alley Boy Persico. So when I say Little Alley Boy Persico, it's his son. When I say Alley Boy Persico, it's his brother. We got John Jackie DeRoss, Anthony Scrappy Scarpati, Andrew Andre Mush Russo, Dominic Little Dom Cataldo, and Hugh Apples McIntosh. So this IRS agent, Richard Anichirico, starts working with Persico and he starts accepting bribes from him. And not only does he do that, but he starts accepting bribes from people working on behalf of Persico. And he starts talking to them about all this criminal stuff and just presenting himself as a crooked cop. Like, yeah, I'm a cop, but I'm crooked and I'll accept bribes from you. And I'll talk to your friends who are speaking on your behalf and I'll accept bribes from them. The first thing that Anichirico is tasked with is getting Persico moved to New York City into a federal prison because right now he's in Atlanta prison and he doesn't like it. Obviously, the leader of a mafia family, he wants to be in New York City. Also, when you're in prison, probably the most important thing about prison is that you're in a good prison. The prison experience is completely different based on where you end up. And if you're going to go to jail, you want to go to a federal prison. They're the ones with more money, more amenities, more comfortable living arrangements, like shit that matters when you're on the inside. Things that you don't think would matter so much, it matters a lot when you're inside and that is your entire life. 
It is also obviously important for Persico to be in New York City. Being outside of New York City, being in Atlanta, Georgia, it's a huge freaking hassle. Having to have your men travel long distances just to come see you in person for a decision is a pain in the ass. Now, don't get me wrong, Persico has the power to do it. He could be sitting in an Arizona prison or a California prison, and he could literally make his men commute on a regular basis to get his verdict on things. But it's just not something that he wants to deal with. Nobody wants to make people do that shit. So he goes to Anitrodico and he's like, all right, here's some money. Get me moved to this federal prison in New York City. Get me out of this Atlanta hellhole. I don't want to be in Georgia anymore. I want to be in New York City. Here's some money to make that happen. While this is being worked on, the next task is handed to the IRS agent. Again, Persigo and his friends, they believe that this guy is a cop, but he's a crooked cop. Another defendant in the trial, Victor Puglisi and Hugh McIntosh, are the next people to approach Anitrico with a task on behalf of Persigo. Puglisi owns a restaurant on Long Island, and he turns out to be the mouthpiece for Persigo when dealing with this IRS agent. They make sure to clarify that everything that's being said has been pre-approved by Persigo. And he even goes on to clarify that even if the terms of this payment weren't able to be fulfilled, he would still make money because Persigo is a good man. So like, okay, yeah, we want you to get him moved. But if you work on it and it ends up not being able to be done, we'll still pay you. Like you tried, dude. Persigo's a good man. He's going to make sure that you get paid for your time, even if you're not able to do what we want you to do. A payment of $250,000 was authorized by Persico to go to Anitrico to get him an early release from jail. Because nobody wants to be sitting in prison. Let's be real here. You don't want to be in jail. He wants to be on the outside. So he gives him 250 grand and he's like, hey, take this. Get me the F out of here. One of the tapes that Anitrico recorded has Persico in person, on tape, saying, we'll love you if you make good on this. That is one sentence of one tape out of 20 tapes that Anichiriko had accumulated. So like, this is an open shut case. Throughout the 1980s and 90s, the Colombo family experienced a lot of internal power struggles just as they had before. Like, that doesn't go away. It keeps going. Just as it had before, rival factions within the family continued to vie for control. And just as it had before, it led to a lot of violent conflicts. And that is something that always kind of made the Colombo family one of the weaker families. Like, you always hear that the Gambino family is the most powerful family. And it's because you never hear of civil wars in the Gambino family. Like, yeah, okay, cool. John Gotti took out Paul Castellano. Everybody hated Paul Castellano, yada, yada. But that's not an internal war. That's just somebody being whacked. This is a war. This is factions within the family going to war with other factions with people that are commission sponsored like it's a whole different ball game than somebody whacking the boss of the family it's just different okay so that has a pretty big impact on the power that the colombo family is going to exert as a whole the colombo trial which took place in 1984 was a significant legal case that targeted the leadership of the entire Colombo crime family, including Carmine Persico. So now this is a whole separate set of trials. So the IRS trial goes on. And Ichiriko records all this evidence, 
brings Persigo and 11 other people to trial, they all get found guilty. Persigo's sitting in jail for that. Now, in 1984, the Colombo trial is brought against him while he's sitting in prison for bribing the IRS agent. On October 14, 1984, Carmine Persigo, along with eight other high-ranking members of the Colombo crime family, was indicted on multiple racketeering charges. The charges were centered around Persigo and his friends and their control over several unions. The main union that's causing problems here is going to be the District Council of the Cement and Concrete Workers. According to these charges, Persigo had extorted millions of dollars from construction companies all across New York City with this union and his control over it. According to the prosecution, the Colombo family, as well as the mafia as a whole, gave major construction jobs to this little club that had formed. And this little club is filled with construction companies that had already agreed that they would provide kickbacks if they were given the jobs by these families. So in other words, there's this little group of construction companies that agree to play ball. Okay, cool. You throw me that job and I will pay you for giving me the job. I'm going to quote you at, let's say... $30,000, or mm, more realistically, I'm going to quote you at $4 million. You pay me $4 million, but I'm going to give you back $500,000 of that so that either way, even if they don't come in as the lowest bidder, they're going to get the job. And don't get me wrong, as a whole, like you are not required to hire the person that comes in as the lowest bidder. There's no law that says as a company looking for somebody to do construction work for you, you have to take the lowest bid. You don't. You can say, okay, this is the highest bid, but I feel most confident that this person's going to do the best work. And, and you can do that. There's nothing that says that you can't do that. What you can't do is take control of an entire union that controls all of New York City construction and then say, oh, I'm only going to give jobs to the people that agree that they're going to pay me back. So on the books, it looks like I'm paying $4 million. But under the table, they're giving me $500,000 back. So in reality, I'm only paying $3.5 million. And that is obviously a way to clean that money and have a little extra cash in your pocket. Facing the serious charges and the prospect of a lengthy prison sentence yet again, now Persigo was in jail on the IRS thing, but now he has gotten out. He's currently on trial with the IRS agent, but you don't sit in jail. You can bond out. So in other words, like he paid a bond or bail, whatever. He's on trial with this IRS agent, but while he's on trial going to court, figuring out if he's going to be found guilty and have to go to jail for trying to bribe this IRS agent, he is now getting hit with the Colombo trial. And the Colombo trial is looking like it's going to be some serious time. Like he can do the IRS agent trial. It sucks. It's an open and shut case, but you're not going to walk away with a life sentence from that. The Colombo trial, that's pretty serious shit. That's not bribing an IRS agent. That's extorting millions and millions of dollars from an entire city. So now Persigo is looking at this and he says, not only do I have the trial with the IRS agent going on, but I have the Colombo trial that just came up on me. And I'm about to go to jail for a really long time. So what does Persigo do? He goes into hiding. He decides that he is going to evade arrest and he is going to evade going to trial. He's just, he's done. I'm out. I'm going to go hide in a bunker somewhere. 
Fuck all this. As a fugitive, Carmine Persico becomes one of the most wanted criminals in the entire United States. And again, by October 26th, 1984, so like two weeks later, the FBI launches a nationwide manhunt for Carmine Persico. And he subsequently added to the FBI's top 10 most wanted fugitive list. The top 10 most wanted list, it is the elite of the elite criminals. If you make it onto the top 10 most wanted, like you are the creme de la creme of criminals, okay? You are the baddest of the bad. That takes a lot to get that kind of designation. And Carmine Persico was just given that, which he really hasn't made the top 10 in the past because he has never run. Every time charges have been brought against him, he goes and he stands trial and he wins a lot of them too. Don't get me wrong. He doesn't get found guilty every single time. He has walked away from major trials, but this one he knew he was going to lose. There was too much evidence. He knew he was going to lose. So he says, screw it. He goes underground and now he's on the top 10 most wanted. The manhunt for Persigo involved a major, major, massive law enforcement operation with federal, state, and local agencies all working together to try to track down and apprehend the fugitive mafia boss. Like, think about that. The boss of one of the five families in New York has now gone underground and we have no idea where this man is. That doesn't happen. The boss of one of the five families, you can always go to the store that they hang out at and find them. It's very rare that a boss goes underground. So this is some serious shit. On January 9th, 1985, after nearly three months on the run, Carmine Persigo was arrested in a Long Island apartment, which, whoop whoop, represent. I'm from Long Island, born and raised, whoop whoop. So he's hanging out in this Long Island apartment. They come, they bust the door down, they arrest him. The arrest was a significant victory for law enforcement because they had been all over the newspapers and all over the news and all over everywhere. Like, yo, we're looking for Carmine Persico. He's top 10 most wanted. If you see him, say something. And then they found him because it was looking like they weren't going to find him. This man was on the run. There was, how the hell are you going to find somebody that just disappears? So it's a huge moment for law enforcement to be able to parade him in handcuffs in front of the media. So now he's arrested and obviously he's brought to trial as part of the Colombo trial. The trial resulted in the conviction of Persico as well as all of the other defendants that were brought to this trial. And it led to lengthy prison sentences for each and every one of the defendants. Persico was convicted as the boss of the Colombo family and he was found guilty of every single one of the 28 charges that were leveled against him. This trial did a lot to expose the inner workings of the Colombo crime family, and it had a pretty big impact on their ability to stay a forceful family in the mafia. But despite the setbacks, the Colombo family is obviously going to continue to operate. They have reduced power, they have reduced influence, but they are still one of the New York Five families. That's, you ain't going to take that away from them, okay? You can arrest their whole leadership and they will continue to be the Colombo family. After the verdicts were read, Giuliani walked outside and did a press conference where he told the media that the jury had crushed the top leadership of the Colombo mafia family. He always was a dumb one. I hate Giuliani. If he didn't realize that Persico led just as effectively from prison as on the streets, he really never knew anything about the mafia in the first place, did he? Because you didn't do shit. 
okay? Yeah, it's gonna be a little more difficult for him to give orders from prison. But let's not be coy here. You didn't do shit. The Colombo family is still gonna exist. He's still gonna lead the family. He's still gonna make every important decision. So stick that up your ass, Giuliani. Stupid little bitch. Now, this isn't the only case that's going on against the leadership of the mafia. Around the same time, cases were running for the pizza connection, and another case was also running that was dubbed the Gambino family trial. So at the same time, we have the Colombo family trial and the Gambino family trial. They're all getting their own hand-picked individual trials. During his time in hiding, Persigo had sought refuge in the home of his cousin and her husband, Fred de Christopher, in Hempstead, New York. So Hempstead is on Long Island. That's where he was arrested. Hempstead, I believe, is Nassau County. I'm pretty sure it's Nassau County. I know it's on the railroad, like the Long Island Railroad. It goes through Hempstead. I'm pretty sure it's Nassau County, but it's pretty close. Hempstead is pretty close to Suffolk. So now, during this time that he's in hiding, he has no idea. But to Christopher had been cooperating with the FBI for the past two years as a full-blown informant. He had been caught up in a sting operation and started providing information to the Bureau in an effort to mitigate his own legal troubles, just as every other mafia rat little bitch does. You know, oh, I did a crime. I don't want to do the time, so I will tell you everything that I know about everyone else so I don't have to pay for what I did. Now, the FBI, they realize that they have a huge, huge value here. They have to Christopher, and they realize that Persigo has just ran away and gone underground into the home of an informant. Now, not only do they know exactly where Persigo is, but on top of that, they have a chance to have somebody up close and personal with a New York Mafia leader. So what do they do? Because they want this ruse to continue. They want Persigo confessing to everything to this informant. So what do they do? They go out and they concoct a fake manhunt for Persigo. And they pretty much do what Persigo would expect them to do if they didn't know where he was. So they go out and they go on the news and they go to the media on the newspaper. Oh my God, we can't find Persigo. Find Persigo. Help us, please help us. But all along, they know exactly where he is. Why? Because Christopher is telling them every single thing that's happening but they don't want him to know. And if they don't go out looking for him, he's gonna be like, wait, why aren't they looking for me? You know, so they have to put this facade on and they do. If the FBI is good at one thing, it is putting on a show for the public. This entire manhunt that is going on, seemingly including all of these agencies and millions and millions of dollars spent to try to track Persigo down, it's all a ruse. And it's all done to shield the fact that De Christopher is an informant providing information about Persigo's location, every word coming out of his mouth, everything that he's doing is going right back to the FBI. The FBI's plan was to create the appearance of a nationwide search for Persigo, hoping that he would become more cautious and less likely to communicate or move around with the entire world, making it so that he only has one contact and one person in the entire world that he trusts, Fred De Christopher. In reality, all along, the FBI is closely monitoring Persigo. And thanks to the information that's being provided by Dick Christopher, they're finding out things they never knew. 
After nearly three months on the run, Carmine Persico is arrested into Christopher's home by the FBI. The arrest comes as a huge shock to Persico. How the hell could they know where he is? He's in his cousin's home. How the hell did they find me? He probably thought he was super safe. Like, there's no way they would look here. They don't know I have any kind of relationship with this person. So he's sitting there, slackjaw. What the hell? How the hell did they do this? During the Colombo trial, Fred to Christopher played a huge role as a key witness for the prosecution. He provided damning testimony against Persico and all the other defendants standing trial. Defense lawyers argued that to Christopher had been programmed to lie, literally hand-fed information by the FBI, and he was lying his ass off. Nothing he testified about could be believed or given any weight whatsoever, and the jury should just look at him as a joke. Every word coming out of DeChristopher's mouth is untrue. Don't believe it. He is being spoon-fed words to say by the FBI to get himself out of trouble for the things that he did. He wasn't the only witness either. There were multiple witnesses and tons and tons and tons of tape discussions to prove that the top leadership of the Colombo family is involved with all this labor racketeering. Millions of dollars of extortion, bribery, gambling, drug trafficking, they are doing everything and they have the tapes to prove it. One of the other witnesses, Aldina Jimmy the Weasel Fratiano, gave testimony that led to Langella's lawyer to levy claims that the prosecution had intentionally brought forth lies. And when those claims were dismissed, that's going to be a huge issue on appeal. While the prosecution brought forth a ton of witnesses, a ton of recorded statements, not one of the nine men on trial testified once. Persico stood trial for these charges alongside his son, Alphonse Little Alley Boy Jr. Persico, who was referred to as his father's trusted lieutenant. Jerry Lang, the underboss of the family, as well as Capos John J. DeRoss, Anthony Russo, Anthony Scarpati, and the rest of the group is made up of like usual old soldiers. You got Dominic Cataldo, Frank Falanga, and Hugh McIntosh, who is in every trial that Persico has ever been brought in because he's Persico's bodyguard and they are like this. They are always together. They are almost as close as Persico was with Columbo when Columbo was the boss of the family. Now, DeRoss and Russo, they're acquitted of some of the charges. They do get found guilty on a bunch of them, but those two are the only ones that get any not guilties at all. All of the rest of the charges stuck for all of the remaining members. DeRoss was the VP of a restaurant workers union, Local 100, and he was only found guilty of conspiracy. Russo ended up only being convicted of two racketeering charges. So these guys, they're not going to jail for life. They're not getting lengthy prison sentences. These two guys, they only have a few charges that stuck. At the trial, it was announced that the Colombo family consisted over 100 members and 500 associates. The next set of trials that we have to talk about is the infamous Mafia Commission trials. The Mafia Commission trial was a major federal prosecution that targeted the entire leadership of all five families of the New York Mafia. It took place in the 1980s, middle of the 1980s, and it sought to dismantle the entire power structure of the entire Mafia Commission. 
Pretty much anybody that stood on the Mafia Commission, they wanted sitting in jail. Carmine Persico, the boss of the Colombo family, was one of the defendants on the Mafia Commission trial. The trial began on July 1st, 1985, and Persico, along with 11 other high-ranking New York Mafia leaders that stood on the Mafia Commission, pled not guilty to the racketeering charges brought against them. The 12 men that were initially arrested for this set of trials, and not all of them would live long enough to see this trial play out in court, but the ones that were arrested and tried in this case were Paul, Big Paul Castellano and Aniello Della Croce from the Gambino family, Anthony Fat Tony Salerno from the Genovese family, Anthony Tony Ducks Corallo, Salvatore Tom Mix Santoro, and Christopher Christy Tick Fernari from the Lucchese family, Philip Rusty Rastali, Stefano Canone, and Anthony Bruno and Delicato from the Bonanno family, and Carmine Jr. Persico, Ralph Little Ralphie Scopo, and Gennaro Jerry Lang Langella from the Colombo family. Now, interestingly enough, Carmine Persico was not even in the initial roundup for this trial. Jerry Lang and Little Ralphie were arrested as representatives for the Colombo family, and Persico wasn't even going to get a spot on this trial. But he was added a little bit after the initial roundup had been made. The prosecution's strategy in this trial was to strike at all of the crime families together, presenting evidence of their involvement of the Mafia Commission as a whole. The goal was to demonstrate that the Mafia operated as an interconnected and highly organized criminal enterprise, with each family having a seat on this commission table, which was pretty much a group of people that led the entire Mafia the way that the Senate or Congress leads America. During the trial, the prosecution's case was bolstered by testimony from the Colombo hitman and FBI informant Greg Scarpa also known as the Grim Reaper. Scarpa provided crucial insider information on the inner workings of the mafia and the commission as a whole. He had a seat on the commission. And this is where I know Greg Scarpa from. I don't know if you guys remember me losing my mind in one of the previous episodes about how the hell I knew this man's name, but this is where I know him from. I've gone over the mafia commission trials before, and I've talked about how this guy is a rat. And I couldn't figure it out when I first mentioned his name. I'm like, where the hell do I know him from? But as soon as I heard that he was a rat on the Mafia Commission trial, I'm like, oh, oh, of course. Of course he was a rat. But like, I, I am like, whoop, whoop. I figured it out, whoop, whoop, because I was losing my goddamn mind. Okay, I was losing it. He got on the stand and testified that Carmine Persico and John Gotti, the boss of the Gambino crime family by then, because by then, by the time somebody was standing trial, Big Paul Castellano had been taken out and John Gotti took the position as boss of the family of the Gambino family. So he gets on stand and he testified that Carmine Persico and John Gotti backed a plan to kill the lead prosecutor of the case, Rudolph Giuliani. Yeah, the same Giuliani that became mayor of New York and is more recently known for being a solid Trump supporter. Like, I'm talking licking Trump's balls next to him at every one of his rallies type supporter. Scarpa claimed that Persico and Gotti wanted to eliminate Giuliani to obstruct the prosecution and impede the trial's process. However, the rest of the Mafia Commission rejected this plan and the plot did not proceed. And honestly, not surprising to hear that. 
Giuliani walks around like he's this big, bad, tough guy, but this guy literally did absolutely nothing when you put him up against someone like Thomas Dewey. Dewey literally sent all of Mafia Inc. to the electric chair. What did Giuliani do? Be upset that his big bad daddy was in the mafia and it made him sad so he decided he was going to take out the mafia? Hey, Rudolph, that's already been done. The Kennedys have the market taken on men whose fathers were in the mafia and then they decided to come after the mafia as a way to feel better about themselves. So why don't you sit down and drink your warm milk, you fucking nutcase? Like, I hate... Giuliani. With all of my soul, I hate that man. And that's coming from someone that lives in the state that he was governor of, or mayor. I don't know. He was he was one. Governor or mayor. Maybe mayor. And he was mayor around the time of 9-11. And I remember that there were some serious issues because he was like leaving office when 9-11 happened. And some people were like trying to fight to extend the amount of time somebody could serve to keep him in office to deal with the fallout of 9-11 because obviously 9-11, it was a national issue, but it was a New York issue. It happened in New York. We had to deal with the fallout from that. So there was some issue about that, but I don't know. I, I hated him then. I hate him now. I've always hated this douchebag. Despite the alleged plot to kill Giuliani, the trial continued and the prosecution presented extensive evidence against the defendants. At the end of the day, the jury found all of the defendants guilty of various charges that had been brought against them, including racketeering, murder, and conspiracy. Carmine Persigo was among those convicted, and he was sentenced to 39 years in federal prison. Now, obviously, you have the entire Mafia Commission on trial, and every single one of them just got lifelong sentences. It dealt a significant blow to the New York Mafia as a whole, and it severely disrupted the power structure within the entire mafia. The convictions of the top bosses and leaders weakened everybody. Everybody in the mafia was weakened by this, but they weren't stopped. Rudolph Giuliani's involvement in prosecuting the mafia commission trial was a notable moment in his career, and it played a huge role in establishing his reputation as a tough-on-crime prosecutor because everybody was willing to ignore the fact that the only reason he was doing this was because his father was running the streets killing people with these mafia members. We'll just forget about that and we'll elect you into office because you decided to come in and do some shady shit. Everybody wants to hate on Biden because his son is doing shit. Well, Giuliani's father literally killed people on the streets of New York with these mafia members and he still got elected. Stupid name. His name is Rudolph. Who names their kid after a fucking reindeer? I hate him. I hate everything about him. I hate his face. I hate his nose. I hate everything about him. He ran for mayor of New York City in 1993, and obviously he won. And that does put him ending his career around the 2001 mark, so that does kind of line up. I knew that somebody had that issue go on, and I, I was... Pretty sure it was Giuliani. I mean, that is one thing I do got to say. He did handle 9-11 very well. He did, I don't know, he got disaster response in place, I guess. I mean, as my father was a first responder, and I saw firsthand that they had volunteers on the pile doing, like, the mass of the cleanup. My dad was one of them. And then one day just pretty much came and said, oh, nope, none of you guys are going to do anything anymore. They didn't give them any signed pieces of paper to say that they had been working. 
They didn't give them any PPE while they were working on the pile. A lot of people died after 9-11 because of the inhalation of toxic substances. And I mean, my dad's alive, thank God. But he does deal with some issues from that. And he never received any kind of written or signed paperwork saying that he worked on the pile. They just kind of, oh, no, it's the firefighter's turn. And I mean, the firefighters themselves, they are the most heroic bunch of human beings in the world. They had nothing to do with that. But when they came in, they just completely dismissed the fact that there was an entire group of people that had been working on the pile for weeks now and nobody got anything signed. They hand them a little pin and sent them on their way. So, you know, yeah, did Giuliani handle it? Yeah. But did he do his first responders pretty goddamn dirty? Yeah. Yeah, he did. Carmine Persico's decision to serve as his own lawyer during the Mafia Commission trial was a huge controversial and bold move. He believed that his experience within the legal system and his previous convictions would enable him to effectively represent himself in court and navigate the complex legal structure. Like he, he was so full of himself. He thought he could do it. No problem. Like I will have no issue whatsoever with this. When he fought on the stand for the right to represent himself, he was warned by the judge that he would not be allowed to appeal later on once he was found guilty for the reason of inadequate representation, which is a pretty common appeal reason when people are found guilty. Because he's on the stand and he is so adamant that he would be a responsible and great lawyer for himself. Like you can't say that you're the most amazing thing in the world and then turn around later and say you had inadequate representation. You said you were great, we believed you. And he said, okay. He's like, yeah, I'm totally cool with that. I am going to beat this because I'm the greatest lawyer in the world. I've never been to law school, but I'm great at it. I'm not going to be found guilty. None of us are going to be found guilty. So yes, I am totally okay with taking that appeal reason away. And now at the same time, he is representing himself, but not really representing himself. He had a lot of help from the lawyers around him. Because remember, he is on trial with the entire leadership of the mafia and they all have lawyers. All of those lawyers helped him a lot. So like, yeah, he represented himself, but at the end of the day, he's got people to ask about every single move he's gonna make. All of the lawyers for his co-defendants were willing to do whatever they could for him because they all knew that if Carmine is found guilty, their client is found guilty. If Carmine is found innocent, their client is found innocent. These guys are all in it together. Innocent or guilty, they are making this decision. They are getting this decision together. So these lawyers, even though they're not being paid by Persico, they are more than happy to provide whatever help they can to this guy because they don't want him being found guilty because him being found guilty means they lost this case. Throughout the trial, Persico... He really did everything he could to project a friendly and approachable image to the jury. He wanted the jury to feel like he was one of them. He's somebody that you could see at the market at the corner of the block. Like, this is an everyman's man. And any one of you could be standing on trial the way I am. And he just wants them to see him as one of them. Somebody that could be sitting next to you on this jury. He attempted to counter the negative stereotypes associated with the Mafia and La Cosa Nostra by urging the jury to set aside any preconceived notion and judge this case solely 
on the evidence that was presented at the case. Because no matter who you are, you're going to have some kind of exposure to the mafia before you stand here, especially since you have to be tried in a jury of your own peers, which means every single person standing on that jury is a New Yorker. So not only do you have the headlines that are national news, every time something happens nationally, everybody in America knows who the mafia is. But on top of that, you have the local newspapers, you have the local news and like all New York news ever talked about was the mafia because there was constantly mafia shit happening. So he gets up and he's like, listen, I need you guys to forget anything you've ever heard or thought about the mafia. It's not true. It's what they've tried to make you believe because they need you to hate us. So what I need you to do is I need you to forget anything you ever believed about the mafia. And I need you to just look at what is presented here, please. Because our lives depend on your ability to separate what the FBI has shoved down your throat and what I'm about to show you at this trial. However, a lot of people that watched the trial believe that he inadvertently harmed his own defense. Because when he's cross-examining prosecution's witnesses, he's sometimes ending up acknowledging that he had involvement in criminal activities. And it would confirm details that was going to be used against him later on. This led to concerns that his self-representation strategy is backfiring, and it is backfiring hard. His own words and actions are being used against him, and they're providing the prosecution with ammunition to strengthen their case as the trial is going on. They don't even have to go look for new evidence. They have this man sitting here because he would not take the stand in his own defense. None of these guys took the stand. But because he's serving as his own lawyer, he's ending up confirming that he was there during this criminal activity, during that criminal activity. Like he is pretty much taking the stand in his own defense as his lawyer. And it, it ended up hurting him. Ultimately, Carmine Persico and his co-defendants were all found guilty on various charges related to the racketeering, murder, conspiracy, everything. And his self-representation during the trial is remembered as a noteworthy aspect of the case. Like you think about the Mafia Commission trial, you think about the fact that Carmine Persa goes up there acting like a lawyer. It demonstrates the risks and potential pitfalls of choosing to represent yourself in a complex and high stakes legal proceeding. At the end of the day, he was found guilty of everything that he was charged with, and he received a lengthy 39-year prison sentence. All co-defendants were found guilty, and everybody ended up with a very long prison sentence. The convictions included a wide range of serious racketeering-related offensive. Judge John F. Keenan sentenced Carmine Persigo to an additional 100 years in prison for his involvement in the Mafia Commission trial. This sentence was ordered to run consecutively with his 39-year sentence in the Colombo trial. But at the end of the day, it meant that he faced a combined total of 139 years in prison. Then, on January 13, 1987, the judge imposed a substantial fine of $240,000 on Persico and denied him any possibility of parole. This decision effectively ensured that Persico would spend the rest of his life behind bars no matter what. Like, he was going to die in prison. The trial was a major blow to the New York Mafia, and it marked the end of an era of a powerful criminal organization and powerful families in the city. The conviction of top Mafia bosses, including Persico, had a huge impact on the entire organized criminal underworld. 
And you know what? This trial, this trial right here, the Mafia Commission trial, is really what led people later on to saying that the Mafia has been taken down. It doesn't exist anymore. And to this very day, today, in 2023, people still believe that. <laughs> I have said since the day I made this channel, and in every video that I have ever made, I will continue saying for the rest of my life, the American Mafia never went anywhere. It's a good thing that the public at large thinks that the Mafia is gone, and they think that the Mafia has no power or control over anything anymore. That's what the Mafia wants you to believe. That's the whole point of the Italian-American Civil Rights League. That's what every Mafia member that has ever taken the stand without being a rat has claimed. The Mafia was never a thing, and nowadays, they don't say it was never a thing. They say, the Mafia doesn't exist anymore, and it's because of the Mafia Commission trial. And the more that the public believes that the Mafia does not exist anymore, the better it is for them. One of the key aspects that were highlighted by Selwyn Robb in his book, The Five Families, was Carmine Persico's position within the Colombo crime family. At the time of the commission trial, Persico was only 53 years old, and that made him the youngest boss among all of the New York crime families. However, despite his relatively young age, he had already been leading the Colombo family for 14 years. So it's not even like, okay, yeah, he's a little young, but he just got here and we've seen, no, he's been here for 14 years. In the book, Rob asserted that he was at the peak of his abilities. And it's not really that surprising to see that he would be in this position at such a young age and that he had also been in power for so long. Remember, he was the youngest person in like the mafia's history to ever become a made man. So it's totally what we would expect to see. We see the progression of power and it makes sense why everything would look the way it does when it all comes tumbling down. Following his sentencing, Carmen Persico was sent to the United States Penitentiary in Marion, Illinois, and he was set to start his combined 139-year sentence. By 2017, he had been transferred to a medium security federal correction complex in Butner, North Carolina. And it looks like he was relocated to Butner because he was getting old. He needed a facility that would have the ability to treat his medical needs that would arise at an old age. Interestingly enough, while he's in jail, Carmine Persico formed a friendship with none other than Bernie Madoff, a notorious convicted fraudster. Madoff orchestrated one of the largest Ponzi schemes to ever be pulled off in the history of ever, like ever. This guy was horrible. He defrauded countless investors out of billions of dollars, and this man took everything from them. Their savings, their retirements, their pensions, everything was taken by this like slimeball, the most horrible form of life ever created is Bernie Madoff. That slum, oh, I hate that guy. Woo, I hate that guy, okay? I'm in finance. I have a certain feeling about Ponzi scheme dudes and I live in New York. I've seen fallout from Madoff, so I hate him. <laughs> the New York Post further revealed that Persico, he liked playing games like Pinochle and Bakchi and other mobsters would often be entertained with like stories of Persico's past. So like he would hang out with Madoff, he would hang out with all the other mobsters and they would just like swap stories. And I mean, obviously everybody 
in and outside of the mafia knows who Persico is. So like when he's telling a story, I'm sure you know you can believe it. I'm sure at least one of those stories was about the time that he dressed up as a woman and trolled the streets of Brooklyn looking to kill some gallows. But yeah, he was a hoot. He was like the life of the party. You know, he's an old man, but he still was all over the place. Just like, yeah, you know, in my day, this is how we did it. And just everybody loved him. Carmen Persico, who was currently the imprisoned boss of the Colombo family, ordered the acting boss of the family, Joel Kakache, to eliminate William Arenwald. Arenwald was a retired prosecutor who had worked on the Joint Strike Force Against Organized Crime on mafia-related cases in and around New York City. He had allegedly shown disrespect towards the mafia, which led to an order for his killing. Later on, when Arenwald was talked to about this, he thought that Persico had come after him because of testimony that he had given in a trial against John Gotti. And this whole thing, I swear, it's so freaking bizarre. It doesn't make any sense to me. So let's go through it a little bit. Joel Kakache, acting on Persico's orders, assigned two hitmen to carry out the murder of Arenwald. Tragically, the hitmen, Vincent and Eddie Carini, mistakenly targeted and killed Arenwald's father instead of the prosecutor, William Arenwald, that Carmine Persico wanted assassinated. They took out George Arenwald, William's 78-year-old father, who was a small-time hearings officer for parking violations. And they took him out in a laundry in Queens on March 20th, 1987. And it's actually pretty interesting how these two men's identities were mixed up and they ended up killing his father instead of him. The hitmen said that they were just given a slip of paper with the name Arenwald on it. So they didn't realize that they were going after the wrong one when they found George Arenwalds, who did, in fact, work in law enforcement, albeit at a much smaller scale than his son, William. In a completely weird coincidental turn of events, at the time that he was killed, his son, the intended target, like his son was William, Carmine wanted William taken out. So at the time that George is killed, William is currently representing an informant that's ratting about a bribery scheme that's going on at the parking bureau, the place where George worked. The police say that it was totally coincidental and that George was not involved in the slightest in the bribery scheme that the rat that was informing to William was talking about. So, but like, what are the freaking chances of that? What are the chances that William Arenwald is working with an informant who is currently ratting out about a bribery scheme at the parking bureau where his father works? And then his father is killed accidentally because they think that it's his son, William. And nobody still to this day really has like a firm grasp on why Carmine Persico came out of nowhere and said, I want this dude dead. This grave mistake led to outrage from the other New York Mafia families. And they were appalled at the botched assassination. To be 100% honest, and this is just coming from somebody who has looked into the history of the Mafia, if I'm being honest, I don't think that they were so much appalled at the botched assassination attempt. I think that they're a lot more angry that the order to assassinate him was put out in the first place, honestly. Like, really? Arenwald? What a non-noteworthy, useless human being to break that rule for. Not that, like, he's useless. I don't know. I haven't done any research on him. He could be a complete POS. He could be the best person in the world. I'm just saying 
that it would be useless to go after him. He's like an insignificant in the grand scheme of things. If you're gonna throw the rule that you don't go after law enforcement out, you know, no, then never happened. We're not gonna listen to it. If you're gonna throw that rule out, don't you think it would be a lot smarter to go after somebody like, I, I don't know, Rudolph Giuliani, Thomas Dewey, Robert F. Kennedy, someone who actually dealt some serious blows to the mafia. But William Arenwald, who like did nothing but have like some small testimony in a John Gotti trial, it's the freaking weirdest thing ever. Who's even heard the name William Arenwald until his father was killed? He's insignificant. It doesn't make sense. This cannot be the whole story. There has to be more to it. There has to be. This is the entire story that's released to the public. It just doesn't make sense to me. I'm telling you something's off, something's wrong, something's missing. A man like Carmine Persico, who was around and jailed by Rudolph Giuliani, does not go after William Arenwald. And like, yeah, I get it. Oh, there was an assassination attempt on Giuliani. No, there wasn't. If there was ever an assassination attempt to the point that like there was hitmen hired, it would have been a whole different story, but it wasn't. Like they had some short conversation about taking out Giuliani. It was probably like, oh, I hate that guy. I want him taken out. And then some rat got on the stand and said, oh, they tried to take out Giuliani. Like, no, no one was ever hired to take out Giuliani. But for somebody that sat trial and got put in jail by Rudolph Giuliani to turn around and hire a team to take out William Aaron. Well, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to me. This whole thing with Kakache is so confusing. So I'm gonna try to put like a accurate timeline together. So Kakache orders the murder on behalf of Persico of William Aaronwald. He orders Vincent and Eddie Carini to kill William Arenwald, because Arenwald randomly sat on a trial for John Gotti. Like this, it's so weird. It doesn't make any sense, but okay. So he orders Vincent and Eddie Carini to kill William Arenwald. These morons kill the wrong person. And because of the mess up, Kakache orders the murders of these two. So Vincent and Eddie Carini are taken out. He sends in Carmine Virali and Frank Santora to take out Vincent and Eddie Carini. After these murders were carried out, Kakache took it a step further and killed the second set of gunmen to ensure that no loose ends whatsoever remained. This time, Kakache took the job in his own hands and he took along Frank Smith to carry out the third hit in this weird series of events. Frank Smith is the one that unleashed the bullets on Carmine Virali and Frank Santora, which just so happened to take place outside of a Bath Avenue social club. It's not specified whether or not it's John Gotti's Bath Avenue social club, but it would be super weird if it was. But then again, wouldn't it be just as weird if it wasn't? So, so far, we've got a hit team, a hit team to kill that hit team, and then a hit team to kill that hit team. To take it that extra sleazy step, Kakache then turns around and marries Kim Kanoa, wife of Ed Carini, one of the initial two hitmen that were killed on his orders. They later got a divorce. Shocker. Frank Smith ended up spending a huge chunk of his life in jail, but he was let out in 2003 when he became a federal informant 
and admitted to these killings. I'm assuming he testified against Kakache and then he went into Witpro and he failed out of Witpro. So I don't really know if anybody knows where he is right now. He's not in Witpro anymore, but he's also not in jail. In 2004, many years after all of these killings had taken place, Joel Kakache pled guilty for his involvement in the Aaronwald murder. He accepted responsibility for orchestrating the hit, and once again, Frank Smith had agreed to testify. So I'm assuming that he pled guilty because Frank Smith is just straight out like, yeah, I did this, and I was sitting right next to him. He didn't really have a choice but to cop to doing this. Like, he did it. It was open and shut. And there was a witness to say so. Interestingly... No charges were ever brought up against Carmine Persico in connection with the murder of William Aaronwald's father, George. At this point, honestly, he's already serving a prison sentence that's going to last the rest of his life. There's really not even any point. It's just going to cost money to throw a trial. So I can see why they didn't bring anything against Carmine Persico. They're really never going to bring anything again against Carmine Persico. It's just a waste of time. He's rotting the rest of his life in prison. Let bygones be bygones, baby. And honestly, that's usually why there's usually, now there's, this isn't the case all the time, but there's usually a different prison that like lifers go to. Not always. Sometimes you'll see a lifer in a jail that you'll see people that are only there for a few years with. But for the most part, I feel like they do their best to make sure that lifers are separated, for the most part, from people that are just doing a few years. They go to a more hardcore prison. And I would assume, you know, once he got old enough and he's like an old man and he's not really that much of a threat, that's probably when he was transferred in 2017. That was probably when like it didn't matter if he was around other lifers. But I would assume up until that point, they probably did their best to keep Carmine Persigo or people that are serving similar sentences 100 plus years away from guys that are serving five years. And that's for the most part because they don't have anything to lose. Why not shiv the guy that looked at you wrong? What are they going to do? Add another 100 years? You can't do shit to me. You do not want to mess with somebody who has absolutely nothing left to lose. To the point that this man ordered the hit of a prosecutor and they didn't even bother bringing charges. They're like, nah, eh, why bother? After pleading guilty, Kakache was given a 20-year sentence, and the actual target of the hit, William Aaronwald, went to trial and fought to have him moved to a prison that's far away from New York so that he didn't really have much chance of seeing his family members. Since he had robbed William's chance to have a family with his father, Kakache should not be able to have a family either. Aaronwald testified that they should suffer some measure of the grief and pain that my sister, myself, and our family has been made to suffer because of him. Kakache was charged with another law enforcement murder in 2008 for the 1997 murder of NYPD officer Ralph Dahls. He was acquitted of these charges and released from prison on May 22nd, 2020. And Joel Kakache is sitting pretty chilling somewhere right now, free as a bird. William Aaronwald died on October 29th, 2020 in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida of a cardiac arrest. I don't think that it's crazy that he died only a few months after Joel Kakache was let out of prison. He died of a cardiac arrest, but how many times have we heard of murders being carried out to look like a cardiac arrest. Now, I'm not saying anything. I'm not, I'm not making any accusations, especially since Joel Kakache is literally free right now, okay? I'm not saying shit. I'm, 
I don't know nothing. I don't even, who is Joel Kakache? But I do find it interesting. I do find it interesting that William Ehrenwald stood on a stand and said he wanted to take Kakache's family away from him. And then Kakache gets out of prison and only a few months later, William Ehrenwald is dead. So, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong. Man, dude was old. Like, okay. We only know that he died because Jeffrey Aaronwald, his 79-year-old son, announced his death. So he was old. It's not like, oh, there's no way he could have... He could have died just of old age. But I have to think that one has to have something to do with the other. But yet again, I don't know shit. I'm nobody. Listen, <laughs> Joel Kakache is out there and love you, man. I didn't say nothing. <laughs> After realizing that he would likely spend the rest of his life in prison and unable to actively control the Colombo family, Carmine Persico took steps to have his relative take control of his family in his absence. In the wake of his sentencing, Persico appointed his brother, Alphonse Alleyboy Persigo as the acting boss of the Colombo family. The only problem was Alleyboy's reign was short because he was arrested for loan sharking and denied bail. So he's in the same predicament Carmine's in. They're both in prison. He can't be the acting boss. Realizing the need for a more stable leadership arrangement, Carmine Persigo then formed a three-man ruling panel to collectively oversee the family's affairs. In 1988, Persigo decided to dissolve that ruling panel, and he appointed Victor Little Vic Arena as the temporary acting boss of the family. Arena, a loyal capo from Brooklyn, was given significant powers, including the authority to induct new members to the family, so make new made men, and the ability to order killings independently. He didn't have to go to the commission or to Carmine Persigo to get a prior okay. He was allowed to do that on his own. And that's something that's pretty unusual for an acting boss in the mafia. Usually an acting boss has to get permission from the actual boss who was Carmine Persigo, but Victor Arena didn't have to do that. He was just do whatever you wanna do. I'm, I'm here if you need me, but if you don't, you don't. Persigo's choice of Victor Arena as the acting boss was very strategic. Arena was the capo of little alley boy Persigo's crew. Carmine wanted to ensure a smooth transition of power once his son got out of jail. So he handpicked Arena with the understanding that Arena would hold the position until Little Alley Boy is released from prison. So Little Alley Boy gets out, you're handing him the role, but in the meantime, the world is your oyster boy, do what you want. Now, Carmine knew that his son was going to be around 40 years old when he was paroled, and he wanted to make sure that his family's riches and his family's legacy was able to continue on. Even if he was going to be in jail for the rest of his life, he wanted to make sure that not only the Colombo family, but his Persico family was going to be able to take care of itself in the future. In the early 1990s, the Colombo crime family found itself embroiled in yet another power struggle between the Carmine Persico faction and the faction of Victor Arena. Carmine Persico, though imprisoned, he still asserted a huge amount of control throughout the family, and he was the one that appointed Victor Arena as the acting boss. However, Arena grew very dissatisfied with this arrangement and he wanted to become the boss in his own right. He didn't want to be the acting boss. He wanted to be the boss. Arena was tired of taking orders from Persigo, even though this little brat, like, oh, it's not fair. I don't want to take orders from Persigo. 
even though he had been given more power and responsibility than virtually any other acting boss of any family ever. But whatever, it's, it's fine, it's fine. And he was also unhappy with the prospect of eventually handing over the leadership to little Alley Boy. He did not want to hand over power to Carmine Persico's son. He's like, this is bullshit. I want to be boss forever. It's not okay that I'm boss now and I'm going to be the boss for the foreseeable future. No, 10 years from now, I'm not going to be the boss and I have a problem with that. He believed that he had enough support from the capos within the family to be recognized as the rightful leader of the family and the boss, not the acting boss anymore. To bolster his case, Arena asked consigliere Carmine Sessa to go around and just pretty much ask everybody in the family what they would feel about him becoming the boss and overthrowing Carmine Persico once and for all. However, unbeknownst to Arena, Carmine Sessa remained very, very loyal to Carmine Persico and most people in the Colombo family were. Carmine Persico treated his men very well. That is kind of outlined in how Arena himself is treated. He was given more power and responsibility than any other acting boss. And Carmine Persigo, he did not have a problem delegating, okay? He wasn't the one like, oh, I need to do everything. I want to be consulted on everything. Like he had no problem saying, okay, listen, I trust you as a human being. You take care of this. You do it. I'm going to leave you alone. However, unbeknownst to Arena. Carmine Sessa is still very loyal to Carmine Persico. Them Carmines have to stick together. And Sessa is like, oh, hell no. And he quickly goes over to Carmine Persico and he's like, hey, hey, you want to hear some crazy shit? You want to hear some plots that are being devised against you? So obviously Carmine Persico turns around and tells Sessa, go ahead, put a hit team together and let's just take out Arena. Screw this, dude. I'm done. On June 20th, 1991, Carmine Sessa and a five-man hit squad parked in front of Arena's residence on Long Island in Cedarhurst, which, by the way, completely separate from the story, but I do want to say that I find it interesting that he lived in Cedarhurst. I thought, I thought that Ruggiero living in Cedarhurst was like a one-off because I worked in Cedarhurst and I worked there for a while. And let me tell you something, this town is not a friendly town. I don't know if it's because like I worked in a certain area in Cedarhurst and maybe the rest of Cedarhurst is normal and I worked in this specific area and I just so happened to be in a bad spot of it. But let me tell you, oh my gosh, this area that I worked in, I used to get the nastiest looks ever. If I would go into like a regular store and I just had regular clothes on. No, don't get me wrong. I was a little younger. I may have dressed a little racy, but this is the Hasidic Jewish area, which I was under the impression was like a good chunk of Cedarhurst. The area that I worked in was like on a main road. It's not like it was like tucked away in the middle of like a suburban neighborhood. So I was under the impression like, hey, this has to be how all of Cedarhurst is. There's no way it's just like this like one street because the same thing happened one or two streets over. It's very strict. So like I'm telling you, I would go in in like a hoodie and yoga pants and I would get the nastiest looks like, oh, I was an outsider. I was horrible. And, you know, I just kind of put my head down because I, I am. I am an outsider. Like I'm just working here. I don't live here. I'm not one of you guys. So I understand, you know, I get it. I'm just going to stay out of your way, buy my little thing and get the hell out of here. But it's interesting to me to hear that these kind of people are in Cedarhurst when it's such a strict neighborhood. 
I thought that Ruggiero got away with living there and just like it was a one off and like he flew under the radar. But now hearing that Victor Arena, who was a mafia boss, was also living in Cedarhurst, maybe there's a bigger mafia presence in Cedarhurst than even Cedarhurst realizes. Okay, so anyway, the hit team, they're parked in front of the Cedarhurst house. They're waiting for him to come home. Arena goes to go home spots this hit team because he's not stupid and there's six people sitting in a car waiting to kill him. He spots it, he recognizes the danger, and he does not go home. Do not pass go. He nopes the hell out, does not go home. He avoids the assassination attempt and their plot is foiled. Despite the failed hit, the conflict between Persigo and Arena continued for several months and yet again we see factions that are gonna emerge in this war. The situation escalated into a full-blown mafia war within the Colombo crime family, and it led to various acts of violence and intimidation taking place on both sides. This is yet another civil war in the Colombo family, and at this point, it's really not even shocking. There's so many civil wars in the Colombo family, they're just not happy unless they're embroiled in a war within their own goddamn family. Now, I will say that because I'm doing an in-depth look at Carmine Persigo, I'm pretty much looking at the entire history of the Colombo family. If I were to do an episode on, let's say, Gambino, I may find out a lot more about the Gambino family, and maybe there's a whole bunch of civil wars in the Gambino family that I just haven't been made aware of. So like when I'm saying, oh my God, there's civil war after civil war after civil war, Maybe it's like that in the other families, and this is just the first family that I've done a deep dive into the entire history of this family, but I just find this wild. Like, how many, how many wars on top of wars on top of wars? This is crazy. The commission attempted to mediate and broker peace negotiations among these warring factions because they're like, listen, we don't want a civil war. We don't want a mafia war. We don't want people dying. But they also refused to take sides in the conflict and they refused to officially recognize either Persico or Arena as the legitimate boss, pretty much saying we were aware that Persico was the boss, Victor Arena was the acting boss. We're hands off. Listen, don't come to us. We don't want to know. We don't want to show. We don't want to tell. We're doing nothing. We are staying out of it. If you guys need help negotiating peace, we can do that, but we are not going to be the ones to officially say yay or nay to either of these guys because we're not choosing sides. The last thing we need is for this internal civil war to spill out and start coming after our families because we chose a side that you didn't like. The FBI was closely monitoring the situation and they made numerous arrests and conducted raids in an attempt to dismantle the criminal empire that's going on here. And they're trying to mitigate the crime going on in the streets. They don't want to see people dying, even if it's mobsters. They don't want to see a mafia war taking place on the streets. Despite this chaos, just like all other times, Carmine Persico is absolutely infallible and he maintains its influence from prison and continues to play a significant role in the Colombo crime family's affairs. The power struggle finally ended in favor of Carmine Persigo when Victor Arena was arrested in 1992 and later sentenced to life in prison for his role in the Colombo War. Carmine Persigo retained his position as the de facto crime boss of the Colombo crime family and... Victor Arena just kind of swithered away. The Third Colombo War began on November 18th, 1991, when Arena soldier William Catolo 
dispatched a hit squad to Brooklyn in an attempt to assassinate Scarpa, a supporter of Persigo. Now, looking back on that now, I'm sure that Persigo wishes that he had just let that happen because Greg Scarpa, the Grim Reaper, he would later turn state's evidence and testify against him and have a huge part in having him put in jail for the rest of his life. So now that Carmine Persigo is looking back, I'm sure he's like, God damn it. Like I went to war for this little dick and then he turned around and put me in jail forever. I wish they would have just let him do the job. But at the end of the day, that's one of my soldiers. You don't come near my soldiers. These are my people. And if you come near my people, I will kill you, right? The two Colombo groups swapped a lot of successful murder attempts by the end of 1991 and a lot of mafia deaths had taken place. Law enforcement devoted significant resources to bringing the Colombo mobsters to justice in response to the public indignation over the bloodshed. Because you got to think, again, we are in New York, and that's a lot different than being anywhere else in the world, okay? Anywhere else in the the country, let's say, I mean, you know, New Jersey, Connecticut, they kind of, they got this little pack going on. But let's say you're in Illinois, okay? It's a lot different to be in Illinois than it is to be in New York, okay? You're in Illinois, you're reading headlines. You're reading, oh, the the commission trial came to an end and Persigo was given life and all of these bosses were given life. That's not the kind of stuff that New Yorkers are reading. They're not only reading national newspapers, they're reading Newsday. They're watching News 12. They're watching and seeing all of this unfold. Every single little part of these wars are unfolding. People are dying and they're getting pissed. This effort led to 68 indictments, 58 convictions, and 10 mobsters turning state's evidence because of this little scuffle. When Arena was found guilty of racketeering and murder in December of 1992, he was given a life term in jail which put an end to his aggressive group and restored Persigo's power. After the Colombo War with Victor Arena came to an end, Carmine Persigo had to reorganize the family's leadership structure. Obviously, Victor Arena was the acting boss. He doesn't have an acting boss. Gotta figure it out now. By that time, his son, little Alley Boy, was facing new criminal charges, which made him ineligible to take on this leadership role. Instead, Carmine Persigo appointed another ruling committee to oversee the family's affairs, consisting of his brother Theodore Persigo, mobster Joseph Baudanza, and Joseph Tomaseo. In 1994, when Andrew Russo, a high-ranking member of the Colombo family, was released from prison, Carmine Persigo disbanded this ruling committee and he designated Russo as the acting boss of the family. However, Russo was soon sent back to prison in 1996 and at this point, little Alley Boy had also been released from prison so obviously he's gonna take over as the boss of the family. Just like his father, despite his young age, little Alley Boy now has the opportunity to assume a leadership position within the family just like his father has intended. And again, he's very young and he's taking on this role at a very young age, but that's okay because A, so did his father, and B, this boy was born to do this. You know how like kings and queens are born and like from the day they're born, they are just molded to be a king or queen? That's little alley boy Persigo. The day that boy was born, the day he took his first steps, he was handed a Glock and told him you were gonna be the boss of the Colombo family one day. So yes, he's young, but he was built for this shit. This man, does not operate like you or I, okay? This is not just an ordinary person. He was built Lego by Lego by Lego. 
Hey, this is how you do it if you want to be the boss of the Columbo family. Hey, here's how you drink your water if you want to be the boss of the Columbo family. Just everything that he was done, he was sculpted to be the boss. In early 1999, Alphonse Persigo found himself in legal trouble yet again, facing new federal charges that could potentially send him back to prison for an extended period. This situation prompted Carmine Persigo to appoint Joel Kakache as the new acting boss, replacing his son temporarily while he's on trial. Now, during this time, there's also an internal threat to the Colombo family in the form of William Wild Bill Cotolo, a powerful capo within the organization. Carmine and Alphonse Persigo perceive Cotolo as a potential rival, and they look at him as somebody that could seize control of the family if he was given the opportunity. The same way Victor Arena came in, and he tried to like put scouts out and see how it would feel to them if he took over the position, they felt like Wild Bill was gonna do this. They've been burned a time or two before and they don't want it to happen again. To prevent this from happening in the first place, to prevent a new Columbo war coming out, either Carmine or Alphonse allegedly ordered Cotolo's murder. And here we have it, the plot that they go over in the spinoff of the Mob Wives TV show that I mentioned in part one. Cotolo's son is on there talking about how he had Persico's son wrongfully imprisoned because he testified that he was the one that killed his father and he no longer believed that Persico actually did it. And yada, yada, yada. Like, I, I really got to rewatch the show, but I don't want to. I can't tell you accurately what's said. I haven't seen it in years. I could be completely off. So don't take my word for this little part. I know it had something to do. I know it's Cotolo. And I know it had something to do with Persigo being in jail for the wrong reason. But again, I don't feel like watching that show again. It's a good show, don't get me wrong, but it's on MTV, which means you have to watch commercials and I do not watch commercials. So <laughs> it's very hard for me to get up the energy to sit there and go through this entire series and have a million freaking commercials. I just can't do it. So just take my half-ass word for it, okay? If you're someone that's seen the show and you know exactly what happened, please comment and let everybody know so that they don't have to sit there and wonder. Not that they will. It's not really that important of a part, but definitely thought I'd mention it. On May 26, 1999, Alphonse Persigo allegedly lured Wild Bill Cotolo to a Brooklyn park under the guise of a meeting. Instead, Cotolo was taken to an apartment nearby belonging to a mob associate and was subsequently murdered. His body was then buried on Long Island and it wouldn't be discovered by the police until all the way in November of 2008. So almost 10 years later, his body was found. Now remember that I said allegedly, because again, Cotolo's son is on that reality TV show swearing that it wasn't actually Persigo that killed his father and that he feels guilty that Persigo is in jail for this murder that he did not do. So who knows what actually happened? So when I say that Alphonse Persigo did it, we have no idea what the actual story is there. And if he's on national TV saying like, I don't think that little alley boy did it, little alley boy probably didn't do it. Or he's getting paid a lot of money to get on national TV and say that. Let's be real, that, that's a possibility too. After pleading guilty to loan sharking charges on December 20th, 2001, Alphonse Persigo received a 13-year prison sentence, and he agreed to forfeit $1 million. However, his legal troubles did not end there. On October 14, 2004, he was indicted on federal racketeering charges, which included allegations of conspiring to murder William Wild Bill Cotolo and Joseph Campanella. 
Notably, no charges were filed against Carmine Persico in relation to any of these specific allegations. Yet again, he's already rotting for the rest of his life. We're not going to bother spending the money to get Carmine Persico from the prison to this trial. That's really what it is. Like, it's just a waste of money. He's going to die in prison. Let the man die there. The murder trial for William Catola began but it ended in a mistrial due to a deadlock among jurors. However, in a second trial held on December 28, 2007, Alphonse Persigo and John DeRoss were both convicted of Catolo's murder. As a result, Alphonse Persigo received a life sentence in prison, just like his father, Carmine Persigo. In 2004, the Lompoc Correctional Facility, where Carmine Persigo had been housed, was converted into a different type of correctional facility. Because of that, he was transferred to a federal correctional complex in Butner, North Carolina, which is a medium security facility and has a lot more in the way of like taking care of old people. At this time, the Colombo crime family's leadership structure included John Franzisi as the official underboss, Benjamin Castellazzo as the acting underboss, and Richard Fusco as the consigliere. Selwyn Robb, in his book, The Five Families, stated that Persico's relentless efforts to protect his possessions and secure his son's succession to power had a devastating impact on the Colombo crime family. Robb estimated that Persico's deceptive schemes directly led to the imprisonment of around 70 mobsters and associates and was associated with 12 deaths. 12. That's wild. On March 7, 2019, Carmine Persigo, longtime boss of the Colombo crime family, passed away at the age of 85 years old. He died at the Duke University Medical Center in Durham, North Carolina, where he had been receiving medical treatment. An infection in his leg, for which he resisted amputation and diabetes, ultimately led to Persigo's death at the federal jail in Butner, North Carolina. He leaves behind a wife, two children, and 15 grandchildren. Persico's death marked the end of an era in the New York Mafia. He had been a significant figure in organized crime for several decades. Literally, he led the Colombo family for most of the time that the Colombo family existed. Throughout his reign, the family had experienced a shit ton of internal strife, violent conflicts, civil wars, and legal troubles, and a lot of that was due to Persico's leadership style and his various power struggles within the organization. Despite being incarcerated for much of his later life, Persico managed to maintain a hugely firm grip on the family's affair through his associates and the chain of command that he had set up. Carmine Persico's life and criminal career were emblematic of the complex and often violent world of organized crime. His death marked the end of a chapter of the Colombo crime family and the New York Mafia as a whole. Okay, so we are finally at the end of what turned out to be a goddamn four-part series on Carmine Jr. Persico. Thanks so much for watching, especially if you stuck in there through all the episodes and you got all the way up to here. Join me next week as I delve into the lives and legacies of some of the most fascinating and infamous gangsters in history. Please don't forget to like, share, subscribe, follow, comment, do all the things, and I'll see you next week. Bye!